Welcome back, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here with part three and what's officially now a CHP series. As advertised at the conclusion of the last episode, we're going to look at Sherlock and how he wrote himself into the history books. He was a Chencho-born seafaring man who actually got his start working for the Jungs as part of their pirate syndicate. And he worked his way up to right-hand man to Zheng Zhilong, and it was said so close was Sherlong to Zheng Zhilong, it created animosity between himself and Zheng Changgong, Zheng Zhilong's eldest son, the famous Koshinga. But in the 1640s, Sherlong defected to the Ming Dynasty, which was in its death throes by that point. And then in 1646, Sherlong defected again, this time to the new Manchu Qing Dynasty. And it was his collective achievements serving the Kangxi Emperor that he is most lauded for. And I'm not sure if they carved this on his tomb, but part of the headline of his obituary would certainly have to mention he was the one who ultimately took down the Jungs. As the oft-told story went, after Sherlong defected to the Qing, Zheng Chenggong went and rounded up this man's family and killed his father, brother, his son, and a nephew. And from that day forward, Sherlong swore eternal revenge against Zheng Chenggong. Sherlong's defection had quite a profound effect on the Jungs. Sherlong had been a Jung insider and brought a lot of intel with him to the Qing regarding the Jungs' organization and fighting capabilities. He went on to become a major military figure and politician for the Qing. So we ended last episode with the Dongning Kingdom, still under the rule of Zheng Jing. You know, I didn't mention this last time, but Zheng Jing wasn't meant to succeed his father, Zheng Changgong, who saw his son as nothing but a wastrel, which he was. And Zheng Jing, he didn't show much promise at first. He loved to party and have a good time and showed no interest in running the family business. Two times, Zheng Changgong called for his own son to be bumped off sending assassins to deal with this disappointment of a child. In his final years of life, Zheng Chenggong acted irrationally. Besides calling for his eldest son's execution, he also demanded Spain pay tribute to his Dongning kingdom, which of course they refused. As his father's health deteriorated, Zheng Jing, still based in Xiamen, ended up cleaning up his act. And as I mentioned last time, he emerged on top following a succession struggle. And he's going to keep an eye on what the Spanish had going on in Manila. And later on in 1670, he's going to want to invade the Philippines, something his advisors talked him out of. And good thing, too. In 1664, Zheng Jing had been chased out of his Xiamen base. And when it was time to leave China for good presaging Chiang Kai-shek 285 years later, Zheng Jing assembled an entire massive entourage to follow him to Taiwan and get this whole Zheng operation up and running on the island. And part of the big picture, going back to his father, Koshinga, involved creating a new Chinese civilization on Taiwan. Now, while Zheng Jing was carrying out his policies on Taiwan, Sherlong was still trying to convince the emperor to allow him to deal with the Jungs. Sherlong had first gone to Emperor Kangxi six years after Zheng Changgong's death in 1668 and presented a plan that could lead to the defeat of the Dongning kingdom on Taiwan. 
But in 1668, the timing wasn't right. Back then, Kangxi was facing a new headache from the three feudatories, Wu Sangui, Shang Keshi, and Geng Jingzhong. The Qing rulers had trusted these three generals with the three southernmost provinces. And they were loyal at first in the early years of the Qing and represented the interests of the new rulers. But later on, they decided to break away and revolt against the Qing. So taking Taiwan and expelling the Zhengs from their Dongning kingdom in the late 1660s and all throughout the 1670s had to be backburnered until these three traitorous feudatories and Yunnan, Guangdong, and Fujian were dealt with. And dealt with they were by November 1681. And when the last of these three feudatories were finished off, the Kangxi emperor got to breathe a major sigh of relief. With this final challenge to Manchu rule on the mainland now taken care of, all that remained was the Dongning kingdom on Taiwan, with Zheng Jing still reigning as king. Militarily, the Dongning forces were led by a one-time Qing general who had early on thrown his lot in with Zheng Chenggong. This was Liu Guoxian. He had served in the ill-fated 1659 attempt to seize Nanjing, He also played a key role in the defeat of the Dutch and ejecting them from Fort Zeelandia in 1662. So he was an important person in the Dongning power structure. Following Zheng Chenggong's death, Liu Guoxuan became Zheng Jing's main military leader. All throughout the 1670s, he engaged the Qing Navy in a number of battles along the Fujian coast. And it took till 1680 before the Qing were able to expel the last of all Zheng naval remnants from their various Fujian hideouts and strongholds and chased them to Penghu in Taiwan. Knowing that there were no longer any distractions for the Qing military anymore, Liu Guoxian, together with Zheng Jing, began to prepare for the inevitable conflict. They decided to make their last stand on Penghu and have one final do-or-die engagement with whatever the Qing navy threw at them. In the final years of his reign as king of Dongning, Zheng Jing's mental and physical state had continued to degrade, and he fell back into his old ways. And then in March 1681, on the eve of what was to be a massive invasion from the mainland, Zheng Jing suddenly died. From alcohol poisoning, it's believed. The longevity of the Dongning kingdom was already in question when Koshinga died, and somehow... His son was able to keep it going for 19 more years. But now, with Zheng Qing dying unexpectedly, this further diminished the future prospects of the kingdom. Following Zheng Qing's sudden death at this dark hour for the Dongding kingdom, there was already a tussle going on over the succession. And seeing this, the powers in Beijing felt there was no better time than now to launch a naval expedition to defeat the Zhengs. Following a power struggle, Liu Guoxian acted as a kingmaker and put the second son, Zheng Keshuang, on the throne. This grandson of Koxinga and son of Zheng Jing was all of ten years old when potential greatness knocked on his door. Years and years of negotiating between Qing representatives and Zheng Jing, and later with Liu Guoxian, had been carried out throughout the revolt of the three feudatories and had led to nothing. The Kangxi emperor had even offered to make Zheng Jing a feudatory himself that 
would have allowed him to rule Taiwan independently, but within the Qing Empire. Like a one-country, two-systems kind of a thing. But Zheng Jing wasn't interested and preferred an independent Dongning. But now, the military might of the Qing Empire was about to come down on them. And this wasn't like the 1850s when the foreigners were pushing the dynasty around. This was the High Qing. Militarily, the Qing dynasty was still very formidable. The big showdown occurred at the Battle of Penghu. In early July 1683, Shilong led 21,000 men and 238 warships against Liu Guoxuan's much smaller fleet that was outnumbered 3 to 1. July 12, 1683, the fighting began. Four days later, on July 16th, the decisive battle took place where the Qing Navy, led by Shilong, won a complete victory over the Dongning Navy, capturing Penghu on July 18th. Following this resounding defeat, Liu Guoxuan was able to escape to Taiwan. With his hopes dashed, Liu Guoxuan could do nothing except give up the young king, Zheng Keshuang, and surrender to the Qing on September 5th. On October 3rd of that fateful year of 1683, Shilong sailed to Taiwan to formally receive Zheng Keshuang's surrender. Up until this point, even when all was lost, Many Dongning soldiers stayed loyal to the Jungs to the bitter end and fought on to the last man. And those who didn't commit suicide ran for their lives. In the final days of the battle, there was a complete meltdown of the Jungs' Dongning forces. Liu Guoxuan didn't end up doing too bad after his honorable and dramatic surrender to Shilong. The Kangxi Emperor decided to be rather magnanimous in victory and gave Liu Guoxuan a nice sinecure in Beijing as commander of the city gate. So beginning in 1683 and lasting 212 years, Taiwan was under China's sovereignty. The following year, in April 1684, the formal annexation documents were signed, sealed, and delivered. And after his victory over the Dongning Kingdom, Shilong became an enthusiastic advocate for incorporating Taiwan into the Qing Empire. The populated portion of the island in the southwest and around the Danshui region mostly followed what the Jungs had already put in place politically and administratively. It was divided up politically into three counties, led by a magistrate, and the whole territory was placed under the jurisdiction of Fujian province. 8,000 troops were permanently stationed on Taiwan. This number grew over the years. The Kangxi Emperor made it a policy to leave the Taiwan indigenous people alone. Ever since the earliest interaction with them going back to the earliest times, they had made it abundantly clear they wanted to be left alone. One more policy concerning Taiwan was the strict control over the numbers of mainland Chinese who were allowed to migrate there at any given time. You'd think everyone would be on board to finally make Taiwan officially part of China, but the truth was there was a strong countercurrent that felt leaving things the way they were was the best course of action. The main reason was that to administer such a place as Taiwan, which still had no sizable market to export to, was too great of an expense. Chinese with even a passing familiarity with Taiwan believed it to be a place filled with wild savages and not safe at all. Foreshadowing Lord Palmerston by a century and a half, 
one Chinese official had written, and there were multiple versions of this story, that Taiwan was, quote, a speck of dirt on the outer seas with naked, tattooed savages, not worthy of spending our resources on, end quote. Even the Kangxi emperor had said prior to annexation, quote, Taiwan lies over the seas and does not matter much. It is no bigger than a pebble. Nothing is gained by obtaining it, and nothing is lost by not obtaining it, end quote. There were some people in China who felt annexation would lead to a big hassle, and why not just lease it over to the Dutch and let them deal with Taiwan and just pay China an annual tribute? In modern times, many Qing scholars have scrutinized Sherlong wherever his fingerprints were, and there's many who criticize him as this wretched, self-serving, disloyal opportunist who parlayed his great victory over the Jungs to garner all kinds of financial rewards and privileges, including high office. He never lived down feigning loyalty to the Jungs and betraying them back in the 1640s. Some even suggest that he used his personal connections with the Dutch to lobby for the option of allowing them to return to Taiwan and take the place over on a contract basis. But despite these suspicions of collusion with the Dutch, Sherlong is most remembered for using the entirety of his prestige to twist arms and get what he wanted. Despite whatever his detractors say, he more than anyone else was the champion for annexation of Taiwan. His main argument still holds true today. Sherlong convinced the Kangxi Emperor more than anything else. The island controlled the seaways to four provinces of China. It was of critical importance as a maritime defense base that could ensure China's coastal security. If the emperor didn't act now, the Dutch would. Later on, the Qianlong emperor would echo Sherlong's advice to his grandfather when he declared Taiwan was the Haijiang Zhongdi, an important coastal frontier territory and the important fence line of the five coastal provinces. The Qianlong emperor, he was nobody's fool. As far as wealth and honors due to him for being the one who defeated the Jungs, Shilong ended up getting vast tracts of land in southern Taiwan. He scored a Marquis title and was allowed to pass this title on to his progeny in perpetuity. And with the licensing system the Qing government put in place to regulate the European and Chinese trade access to Taiwan, he and so many others who were well-positioned in the bureaucracy were able to earn a nice side income from soaking the foreign traders with fees and licenses. Among his lobbying efforts was this interesting quote where Sherlong praised Taiwan as, quote, endless stretches of fertile land where Chinese intermixed with local savages, end quote. History remembers him as an autocratic first ruler of Taiwan who gouged the local people mercilessly for ill-gotten gains. In the very beginning, nobody knew what to do with this new acquisition. And some can argue all the way up to 1895, the Qing government was never able to come up with a cohesive strategy about how to develop Taiwan and incorporate it more tightly with the mainland, politically and economically. Their basic policy was to station troops there to keep the foreigners from coming back. They didn't want to see any further Spanish or Dutch Formosa situations. They also wanted to make sure that no anti-Qing secret societies or whatnot were operating on Taiwan and using the island as an incubator to grow a force that could become another Koxinga 
the Manchus didn't want any more Zhengchenggongs who might turn Taiwan into some kind of renegade province. They also wanted to take measures that would mitigate the economic burden Taiwan was to the Qing treasury. Let me just say, Taiwan remained as part of the Qing Empire all the way up to the end of the First Sino-Japanese War in 1895. In all this time, the Qing was never able to establish rule over the entire island. There were too many issues that, for a variety of reasons, couldn't be overcome. The native people, the geography, the rivalries, centuries of bad blood between so many. It was beyond their ability. They controlled what they could, which was mostly the west of Taiwan, with its fertile plains running from north to south that were an agriculturalist dream come true. Early on in the desire to categorize the indigenous people into certain groups, the government and residents of Taiwan adopted this nomenclature first discussed by Yu Yonghe. He was a scholar, literatus, traveler, and commentator who did all his great things during the Kangxi era, just like Chen Di and others. Yu Yonghe spent 10 months in Taiwan, traveled throughout the island, and wrote a very detailed and reliable journal of his travels in a book called The Small Sea Travel Diaries, Bi Hai Ji Yo. This is a good first-hand account of observations of Taiwan from the final years of the 17th century. Yu Yonghe is also credited with describing the primary difference between the many aboriginal tribes one was likely to run into. First, he pointed to the Sheng, or raw aboriginals. They were the tribes who lived in the mountains mostly and who, generally speaking, from the very beginning, kept to themselves and never got along with anyone from outside their territory. From a Chinese or Western civilized point of view, these raw aboriginals were the most terrifying, and not just to European and Chinese visitors to their island, even amongst other tribes, these were the ones to avoid. In 1722, a north-south boundary line was established that placed 54 stone markers in place, and each one served as a warning to any Chinese or non-native people to stay on the west side of this boundary and not to disturb the mountain people. Some Chinese settlers from Fujian might have been deterred and turned back. I'm sure there were some who ignored the warnings and ended up getting slaughtered. And for some despite the danger and having to live surrounded by antagonists who still engaged in headhunting, it just became a way of life, and in their eyes, the good outweighed the bad. And over time, all that lost native land, taken over by the more numerous Chinese settlers from southern Fujian, it became a fait accompli, and their lands were now lost. And not just the Hokkien immigrants to Taiwan, Hakas too. They lived apart from the Hokkien, but they too had their own run-ins with the locals, and no small number of them ended in violence and bloodshed. The opposite of raw aboriginals were the cooked ones, the Shu type. They were described as the native people who lived along the west coast on the plains and lowlands. They were more likely to make contact with the Dutch, Spanish, and Chinese residents than the Gaoshan people who lived in the mountains. They were the most malleable and apt to mix with the Chinese and be open to assimilation. There was a third category called the Submitted Raw Aboriginals. As the name suggests, they were raw but had come over to the Chinese side. They were raw in the sense that they lived in the lowlands and highlands and strictly maintained their identity, but 
They maintained friendly and non-confrontational relations with the Chinese. Like I said, the Spanish, the Dutch, the Chinese, no matter Hoklo or Hakka, they were all wary of these so-called raw aboriginals. Fortunately, the raw natives lived in the parts of the island that were less desirous to most settlers. For one, it was totally not suitable for agriculture. So leaving these so-called raw people to their own devices and not picking any fights with them was the policy that worked best. No matter in laws or regulations, the central government, in the interest of trying to avoid any confrontations with these mountain dwellers, made it official policy to leave them alone and to try not to rile them up. The Sinification that began under Zheng Chenggong and continued on during Zheng Jing's reign didn't stop there. Now that Taiwan was officially part of China, bringing all the best of Fujian to Taiwan began to take off at a faster clip. When annexation came in 1684, there was already a Chinese-style government administration in place, complete with Confucian temples, Chinese-style education publicly available, a civil service exam system. The Jungs had very much primed the pump for the Qing era and made it easy for them to hit the ground running. The Qing government had their general overall policy about how Taiwan should be managed. They didn't sanction any corruption. What the center called for and what happened on the other end left a lot of opportunities for well-placed officials along the chain of command uh, fatten their bank accounts. In these frontier lands such as Taiwan, corruption was widespread and the taxes and other financial pressures placed on the local people, Chinese and Aboriginal alike, were oppressive. So bear in mind, it wasn't necessarily the policy of the central government to colonize as aggressively as some settlers did, nor to engage in all manners of developing tribal lands claimed by native people and starting all these fights. The abuses that led to all the unrest on Taiwan was more due to local officials looking for a big score than it was the Qing court in Beijing. The number one gripe was the heavy taxation and other fees that were extracted from all the people eking out a living. Hokkien, Hakka, and native peoples, nobody got special treatment. And because of the heavy-handedness and the manner of how the taxation was carried out, Taiwan became a bastion of unrest. The government maintained 10,000 or so troops on the island that dealt with the 150-something disturbances that happened during Qing rule up to 1895. The old saying went, San nian yi fan, wu nian yi luan. Every three years an uprising, every five years a rebellion. But Taiwan history, 1683 to 1895, those 212 years, despite all the unrest, it still prospered, and though separated by a narrow body of water, Taiwan and Fujian province were joined at the hip, linguistically, culturally, and economically. And for the time being, since the annexation, Taiwan was a prefecture under Fujian. Into the 18th century, new towns emerged along the west coast. Like all the areas rimming Taiwan, these places had all been inhabited going back thousands of years. But where the Chinese settlers and residents were concerned, these were new towns. Jiayi was one. In the native pronunciation, it was called Tirosen. 
The first Han settlers to Jiayi came from Zhangzhou and Fujian, right around the time the Dutch were setting themselves up on Penghu. Back then, Jiayi was called Zhuloshan. In 1704, it became a county seat and an important place, strategically located halfway between Tainan and Taichung. More about Jiayi once we get to the Lin Shuangwen Rebellion. Chinese habitation of Taichung had its beginnings during Kangxi's reign. The Qing military garrisoned troops there, and it grew into a major city on the island. And in 1887, when Taiwan is formally made a province during the Guangxu Emperor's reign, the provincial capital will be moved from Tainan to Taichung. The first settlers in Xinzhu were, not surprisingly, Hokkien from Jinmen off the coast of Xiamen. This city got its start in 1711, but wouldn't really start growing till the 1800s. In 1709, Hokkien Chinese also started settling in the lands of the Katagalan native tribes in and around present-day Taipei, or Taipei. This will become the most important political center on the island. Kaohsiung, just south of Tainan, well, this place too had its prehistoric age, same as the other cities I mentioned that went back more than 5,000 years. Chinese began coming over and settling in and around Kaohsiung since the time of the Dutch, but it was during the years of the Dongning Kingdom that more Chinese migration began to expand southward beyond Tainan into Kaohsiung. These are some of the major cities on Taiwan's west coast today, and you'll be hearing the names of these cities and others in the episodes to come. The Qianlong Emperor began his reign in 1735, and from there on out, he dominated 18th century affairs in China, including Taiwan. But as I said not too long ago, San Nian Yi Fan, Wu Nian Yi Luan. Every three years, an uprising, every five years, a rebellion. And one of the big ones that happened that was illustrative of so many other uprisings happened in April of 1721 right at the tail end of the Kangxi Emperor's reign. This was the Zhu Yigui Rebellion. This disturbance only lasted a couple of months before the Qing forces were able to put an end to it. It wasn't the biggest anti-Qing rebellion on Taiwan, but it was rather dramatic. Zhu Yigui was a Zhangzhou Hokkien who came to Taiwan in the 1710s and did well for himself down in the Kaohsiung area as a duck farmer. As I said, the officials who served the Qing government in Taiwan were notoriously corrupt, excessively so. Taiwan wasn't considered such a plum post for any aspiring official, so Taiwan tended to attract the worst in officials. And the ones serving down in this region, well, they weren't the first and they weren't the last, but in 1721 they went a little too far with their squeezing, and this duck farmer, Zhu Yigui, he put his foot down in about... Fifty like-minded individuals swore oaths to avenge the injustice and unwarranted treatment from these local officials. In no time at all, these fifty turned into a hundred, then a thousand, and then thousands. That's how widespread the anti-government sentiment was. And along the way, Zhu Yigui met the acquaintance of a Guangdong Hakka farmer in similar circumstances as himself, named Du Jinying who also had an axe to grind with the Manchus. And these two, Zhu Yigui and Du Jinying, they assumed leadership roles in this uprising. They marched north to Tainan, then called Taiwan Fu, 
And so threatening was their show of force, the local government base there skedaddled back to Fujian province. So this Zhu Yigui rebellion, well, it didn't really amount to much, but because they attacked the capital and forced the government to flee, they ended up going down in history. It was quite a sudden win for the rebels. This was one of those situations where the charismatic rebel leaders, Zhu Yigui and Du Junying, they established early on that neither one of them was truly fit to rule, even though both of them were already having royal aspirations. They sent the Qing dynasty running across the Strait of Taiwan with their tail between their legs, but they'd be back, and with a much bigger force bent on vengeance. One idea, how to put pressure on the rebels that looked good on paper when it was discussed at the Qing court, was to send Qing representatives to Taiwan and hire native people from the local tribes to kill as many of these rebels as they could and bring their heads to a designated place and they'd be financially rewarded. But you know how people are. What ended up happening is these tribesmen and their attempt to capture rebels ended up catching a lot of minnows in their nets. A lot of local innocents got caught up and ended up getting decapitated and having their heads presented for a reward from the Qing authorities. And these wanton attacks against the local villagers, well, for the sake of protection from the natives, drove a lot of people over to the side of the rebels. So that didn't go as planned. In the meantime, the duck farmer turned successful rebel leader, Zhu Yigui, well, he was now Emperor Yonghe, reigning as Emperor of Taiwan, which didn't include the northern part yet, and certainly not the mountainous half of the island. Representatives from the Qing government, probably Hakas, reached out to their fellow Hakka community in Taiwan and organized a militia that would help fight the fight against the rebels on behalf of the Manchus. That meant that these rebels being led by Zhu Yigui and Du Junying not only had aboriginal people and the Qing army fighting against them, now they also had this Hakka-led militia to worry about. The whole idea of the Hakkas agreeing to join the Qing side drove a huge wedge in between the majority Hokkien and minority Hakkas. Well, let's cut to the chase. The Zhu Yigui, Du Junying rebels certainly made their point and let it be known they weren't willing to suffer this treatment from these corrupt local officials. But heads were going to have to roll, and the Qing military was now fully locked and loaded and heading straight for Tainan. And commanding the operation was no less than one of Shirlong's sons, the sixth one, in fact. And in June 1721, his fleet arrived off the coast of Tainan. They made fast work of the whole uprising, and Zhu Yigui and Du Jinying were captured and taken back to the mainland and given the death by a thousand cuts all in the same month of June. Kangxi, already in his late 60s and not long for this world, made it a new policy to put a tighter leash on these officials that were sent to serve in Taiwan, as well as to take security a little more seriously. So when looking at the period of Qing rule on Taiwan between 1683 and 1895, there was a lot of local unrest that never let up. There was ongoing friction and confrontation with the local indigenous people. There was pushback against officials sent from the mainland. Developing Taiwan was going to be a work in progress. But Taiwan was like any of these Southeast Asian destinations that Chinese were migrating to in the 18th century. The opportunities were boundless. 
Taiwan had farmland and lots of it. There were natural resources, and they hadn't even started growing tea yet. The migration to Taiwan was very organized. All kinds of lineage associations arranged for their own people to head out to Taiwan to help stake out a claim for the family or the village, whatever the association was. When the Qing policy was to put the brakes on emigration to Taiwan, this merely slowed down the flow of people from Fujian and Guangdong who were determined to get in on the ground floor in Taiwan. On Taiwan, despite all the rebellions, there was economic growth, a population growth spurt, and ongoing, sustained signification and assimilation of the native people, again, who came from tribes who lived along the plains, these so-called cooked aboriginals, as Yu Yonghe described them in his book. Well, there was one more major rebellion, and maybe we'll finish off with this one. This one was pretty destructive and consequential, and in talking about this Lin Shuangwen rebellion, we can peer through a porthole into one of the things going on in late 18th century Taiwan during the salad years of the Qianlong Emperor, burning through that bankroll bequeathed to him by his frugal and hardworking father, the Yongzheng Emperor. If you recall from past CHP episodes concerning the Qing, there were these so-called Ten great campaigns undertaken by the Qianlong Emperor, the Shiquan Wukong. Three were out in the northwest in Xinjiang, as well as in Sichuan, Burma, Vietnam, Tibet, and Taiwan. Many say the most famous of the early secret societies of this time, the Heaven and Earth Society, the Tian Di Hui, was formed in 1761 in Jiangpu County in Zhangzhou, next door to Xiamen. A lot of these Changzhou Hokkien people who ended up on Taiwan, these southern Fujianese, well, they all belong to any number of secret brotherhoods or societies, and the Tian Di Hui was the most prominent of all of them. And one of the things that Tian Di Hui stood for was restoration of the Ming. And as far as the Qing court was concerned, nothing got their goat more than anyone or any organization calling for Ming restoration. So over in the Dali district of southern Taichung, the local official there, a rather unlikable fellow, began taking measures to outlaw the Tian Di Hui. He also began rounding up suspected members, and one of the people who got picked up was the uncle of Lin Shuangwen. Lin organized his fellow Changzhou Heaven and Earth Society comrades residing in the area and formed a militia. And this militia in January 1787, attacked the prison holding Ling Shuangwen's uncle. The Qing official who started it all was seized and executed. And this show of force standing up to these very unpopular government attracted a great number of recruits. And this small militia grew very quickly and began spreading southward, controlling most of Taiwan, south of Taichung, the Qing forces serving there tried to quell the uprising, but they were defeated handily. And after achieving their mission, whatever it was, this anti-Qing rebellion sort of went off the rails here. Playing out in the background all this time was this bubbling animosity that existed between Lin Shuangwen's rebels, mostly all Changzhou people, and their fellow Fujianese as well, who hailed from Quanzhou. The two cities where these rivals came from are only 90 kilometers apart. Quanzhou is 
the next major location north of the Zhangzhou-Xiamen area, an hour and a half by car. But back then, on the island of Taiwan, Quanzhou and Changzhou settlers, well, they didn't get along, and no one got along with the Hakkas. So this anti-Qing show of force, instigated initially by the Tian Dihui, Heaven and Earth Society, it just turned into a free-for-all with Lin Shuangwen's rebel forces indiscriminately murdering Quanzhou and Hakka settlers. And so fierce and frequent were these attacks, it drove the Quanzhounese and Hakkas into the arms of the Qing for protection. And watching all of this wearily from the Forbidden City, or perhaps from his wondrous summer palace, was the Qianlong Emperor. In 1787... He still had plenty of energy left in him, and now he had his new advisor, He Shun, at his side. He called for troops to be sent, and for one of his best Manchu generals, a nobleman named Fu Kang An, to lead this attack on these rebels. He set out in December 1787, and in February 1788, the rebellion was put down. Lin Shuang Wen was captured, and they didn't let him off easy. There were over 10,000 Qing casualties suffered trying to put this rebellion down. With the Qing forces led by Fu Kang An, assisted by Quanzhou Fujianese, Hakka, and these native forces, Lin Shuangwen's rebels were annihilated, and whoever survived the final onslaught ran off and became rebels without a cause. In the city of Zhuluoshan, the residents held out when their city was besieged by Lin Shuangwen's forces. Then to recognize their sacrifices in surviving the siege, Qianlong honored the residents of Zhuluoshan by having their city renamed to Jiayi, which meant commendable righteousness. Relations between the different groups of Fujianese and Hakkas remained strained. Time is often a good healer, though. By the start of the Treaty Port era, these times of such bloodshed and violence between these groups on Taiwan, witnessed in the 18th century, dissipated and improved to the point of perhaps only a good-natured contempt for each other. In this Lin Shuangwen rebellion, may have been anti-Qing in nature, but when you peeled the onion down to the center, their beef was really with the local officials and not so much the Qianlong Emperor in his court. Anyone who was a surviving Tian Dihui member fled Taiwan and regrouped on the mainland. And this, Heaven and Earth Society would, in the coming century, provide no small amount of inspiration to all kinds of other Chinese secret societies and brotherhoods that emerged in the later years of the Qing. Well, let's take a breather until next time in Part 4, when we'll enjoy a nice, pleasant romp through the 19th century. As we get closer to the 1800s, we'll see Taiwan's population swell to about a couple million. I haven't focused much on the indigenous people, but by 1800, mixing between the inhabitants who had come from Fujian and Guangdong with the local native people on Taiwan had been going on unabated since the 1600s. One major reason for this was because both Ming and Qing policy discouraged Chinese women from going to Taiwan. So I hope you won't hold me in too much contempt at how I've been kind of generalizing with respect to interactions involving the native people. It was slightly more complicated. So I hope you'll pencil me in for next time when we meet again in part four. Still have a long way to go. 
Until that time, this is Laszlo Montgomery signing off from Los Angeles in the Golden State, inviting you to come back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.